This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for May 8, 2020. On World Password Day, Josh and Kirk ask why we're still using them. A COVID API for trackers needs a critical mass of users to work, a Facebook bug crashes apps, a zero-day exploit named Psychic Paper, and why aren't Macs using Face ID? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm okay. Have you changed your passwords today? No. Should I have? Well, apparently it's World Password Day. We're recording this on Thursday, May 7th, and it's World Password Day, according to some marketing genius someplace. Um, maybe that's the day that everyone should change all their passwords. I know that's like a, a huge job, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Well, you think about how many user accounts that we all have these days. And I mean, that would be such an insane task. It's not like we just have a bank and maybe a social media account. You know, I mean, the average person, I would say, probably has at least dozens, if not maybe even hundreds (laughs) of user accounts for every random website that they've ever visited. Uh, it's just impossible to, to go through and change them all. And, and as we've mentioned many times, it's also impossible if you're doing the proper thing that you should and using a unique password on every site, it's impossible to memorize that many passwords and have them be unique enough from each other. So, um, you know, it's sort of funny that we have this world password day because, we don't, I mean, passwords are kind of the bane of our existence, you know, like they are in security. They're, they're the weak link in security. If we could get rid of passwords and move to something much more secure, then that would be really ideal. Okay. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk about the options that we have instead of passwords. And we'll answer the question, why do we still use passwords? In the news, here in the UK, there is a coronavirus contact tracing app that, according to the register, probably won't work well, asks for your location, and may be illegal. If you follow the news lately, you'll know that uh, Google and Apple have worked together to create an API that's an application programming interface. Contact tracing apps will be able to work both on iOS and on Android. And basically, they'll let you know if you come near someone who's tested positive for the disease, and you'll be able to then go back and say, well, who you've been in touch with, etc. The problem is that there are a couple countries, the UK in particular, that don't want to use the Google Apple solution. And the solution that they've picked is just, it's kind of dumb. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably an accurate way to put it. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I guess the idea behind this is they, they didn't, they didn't want to wait, right? And they just thought that they could come up with their, roll their own solution, right? And, and this is um, generally in things that relate to privacy and things that uh, relate to protecting your privacy, like encryption and such, uh, are not things that you should just try to do on your own without already having a lot of expertise. Now, they did have some people involved in this project that probably should have known better, but um, ultimately, I guess, 
the government uh, in the UK decided we're just going to do our own thing and we're going to put it out and everyone's just going to use it, right? Well, statistically, we keep hearing in the United States that in order for contact tracing to work properly, you need to have a certain threshold of like 60-something percent of the population right. in a given area using that uh, that technology, that software, whatever you want to call it. And if you don't meet that threshold, then there's not enough people using it to where you can get a fairly accurate idea of whether you may have been exposed recently. And um, so that's one of the big problems here is that people actually have to download and install an app. And I don't think that there are going to be enough people doing that. It's it's a big enough challenge just to get people to use something that's built into their phone for this purpose because a lot of people just naturally have privacy concerns over over this or don't really think that it's going to affect them and so are just not going to use it at all. Um, and so to actually have to download something creates an even greater barrier to entry to, to this whole process. On top of that, I've read that only about 80% of people in the UK have smartphones that can run these apps. So they have to be uh, recent enough, and particularly in Android, to be able to support this. And since we know that Android often doesn't get updates, um, any Android phone that's more than a couple years old is pretty much out of the picture. So the, the real problem here is that in order to do something that is widely accessible, you kind of need to work with the manufacturers and Apple and Google have been working together and very quickly to develop an API and a system. And any government that doesn't want to do this, it seems like they're just wasting time and they're not going to come up with a good result. Right. Ultimately, they may end up having to adopt Apple and Google's solution anyway, just because it's going to work better than theirs. Yes. Okay. So if on Wednesday, you noticed that a whole lot of your apps weren't working, it was the fault of Facebook. We'll link to an article in ZDNet, Facebook fixes bug that crashed major iOS apps like TikTok, Spotify, and Tinder. Um, looking later in the article, Pinterest, Venmo, Google, Bumble, SoundCloud. Uh, this is interesting because Facebook doesn't have anything to do with these apps. People didn't update these apps. But what these apps do is they have a Facebook SDK, a software developer kit, which is basically a library that goes into the app. So app developers can add Facebook features into the apps. It could be Facebook sharing, the social graph, or Facebook logins. And you've seen in lots of apps, you can log into an app using Facebook. And what happened here is that the SDK in iOS apps was expecting to get a specific response from Facebook servers every time a user would launch an app. But something happened on Facebook's end. The servers were not responding correctly, and none of these apps could work. Uh, what I find interesting is that you can have lots of apps that depend on essentially software that's not even from them, and that the apps just can't work without that software working. That's, that's a strange way of looking at it. Uh, you understand that an app depends on an operating system, but here it's depending on just a small bit of code for something that has nothing to do with the app. Yeah, that's what I find somewhat strange about this is that something like this, if you're building in something that integrates with some other system, but it's not necessarily an essential feature, like not everybody uses sign in with Facebook, right? Um, but the, the idea that it doesn't fail open, it doesn't fail in such a way that you can continue using the app anyway, that's really indicative of that the software is just designed very poorly. 
When this happens, people sometimes, they'll figure that the app has been corrupted. They'll download a new version of the app. And if it still doesn't work, you'll know that it's not really the fault of your app. It might be Facebook's fault, in fact. (laughs) It might be, yes. We can blame Facebook for a lot. Okay, a little news story that caught my attention this week. Uh, Washington Post, Justice Department scrutinizes White House connected doctor linked to disputed coronavirus treatment. We're not going to talk about what this is about. This is about this anti-malarial drug that might be a treatment um, for coronavirus. But what I found interesting is that someone sent an email intended for this person named Vladimir Zevzelenko, but didn't pay attention when his email client was auto-completing the address and instead sent it to federal prosecutor Aaron Zelinsky. So this is just a cautionary tale, and we've all done this, right? You go to type an email and, I don't know, you type J for John, and you've got 50 people that come up because you know John and Jane and Jeff and Julie, and you just click on the wrong one and you send an email that could be really important, confidential to the wrong person. So you got to be really careful with this. Yeah, I wish I could say that this has never happened to me, but just recently, (laughs) (laughs) just recently, and I'm I'm very careful, by the way, I look very closely at things and uh, and it still happened to me once recently because I I frequently interact with two people named Yossi and uh, and I emailed the wrong Yossi and it was a situation where the other Yossi responded. And then it took like a couple of emails in the exchange before I realized, wait a minute, I didn't mean to email that Yossi. (laughs) (laughs) But for you, these were two people in the same company, right? Yeah. So for me, this happened a few weeks ago that I went to email a Jeff in one company. um, But it actually turned out to be a Jeff in a different company. There was nothing confidential about it, but the Jeff wrote me back and said, did you mean a different Jeff? And I said, oops. <laughs> so sorry, Jeff, if you're listening. Either Jeff, if you're listening. Right. Um, but but this is something that you need to be very careful about. You need to pay attention to the email addresses at autocomplete. And particularly with Apple Mail, people you send emails to are recorded in a previous recipient's list. What this means is you may get an email out of the blue from John and you'll reply, okay, I'm not interested in what you're selling or whatever. And you may have a whole bunch of Johns in your previous recipients list. And this makes it a lot harder as you're going to send emails. Um, I'll link to an article I wrote a few years ago on the Intego Mac security blog called Manage Your Previous Recipients in Apple's Mail. And previous recipients in mail Uh, if you're using iCloud, will sync from one device to another. So they'll sync from your Mac to your iPad to your iPhone, et cetera. Um, Look at this and be careful. What I like to do is, uh, as I explained in the article, I like to go through, sort the ones who are not in my contacts list um, every few months and delete the ones who I'm never going to write again. And in my case, I get a lot of reader email from my website. So these are people, they'll ask a question, I'll answer. Maybe there'll be a couple emails, but I'm never going to talk to them again. So I don't want them being in my list. Interestingly, you can actually do something very similar to this with Gmail. So if you're not using the Apple Mail app and you just log into Gmail on the web, um, or if you're using the Gmail app on your phone, perhaps, there's a way that you can do the same kind of thing. Essentially, 
Um, the thing to know is that Gmail adds people to your address book after you email them once. And so you essentially need to go through your entire address book in Gmail and clear out anybody that you don't intend to ever send a message to again, or maybe you have some old email addresses in there that are not valid anymore. Um, get rid of those. You've got to clean them out every so often just to make sure that you're not accidentally sending to the wrong person. It, it will certainly help because it'll avoid auto-completing some people you may not have intended to send to. And at the same time, you can go through that list and see if there are any people you want to add to your contacts so you don't lose their email addresses for the future. Right. Okay, this week's Zoom Zinger, and this week it's actually not a zinger. It's a, what can we call it? A Zoom Zippy, <laughs> Zippity Doodah. It's actually good news from Zoom. Um, they've added some new features for basic accounts. Admins can now disable personal meeting IDs and all accounts, even free accounts. Passwords will be required for all meetings, including new meetings, previously scheduled meetings, and those using PMI. Waiting rooms for PMI will be turned on by default, and screen sharing privileges will be host only by default. We'll link to the Zoom blog that explains this. And the other good news is that Zoom has bought a company called Keybase, and they're using this to implement end-to-end encryption in uh, Zoom chats, video and audio chats. We talked about this a couple episodes ago, how that they claimed to have end-to-end encryption, and they didn't. So this is definitely a plus for Zoom. I think... On the one hand, we're kind of mocking them with our Zoom zingers, but I think the company has shown uh, a real desire to respond to all this criticism. So we need to give them credit here. Yeah, I like the Zoom zippity doodah. That's that's a good one. Okay, <laughs> um, let's hope we have some more Zoom zippity doodahs in the future. In the meantime, we'll take a break and we'll come back in a few minutes and talk about why we still use passwords. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, we're going to link to a blog post that's a little bit technical, so you don't need to necessarily read it if you don't understand it. Um, A security researcher had found a bug in iOS in 2016, and he took advantage of it to use it for his security research. And we've talked in the past about how vulnerabilities and exploits allow people to check things in, in iPhones and other devices. And he's disappointed that Apple has finally patched this bug. The, the problem is that 
the guy found a bug that was actually pretty serious. It is a sandbox escape entitlement zero day bug. And Josh is going to explain that in a second. But the fact that he didn't report it means that he was aware of a bug that could have caused damage if malicious people got access to it. And he didn't report it to Apple. And that makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what a sandbox escape vulnerability is. So you can imagine a sandbox, you know, a a place where kids play on on a playground, right? It's, it's, it's a nice, happy environment. Everything in the, in the sandbox is nice and safe and happy all the time. Uh, And the idea is that um, with computing technology, a sandbox is something that uh, anything can happen in that sandbox. And it's sort of the opposite idea of a sandbox in real life, where you, th- you imagine only safe things happen in the sandbox. Um, well, in coding and in, in computer technology, stuff that happens in a sandbox might not be so safe. And so you want to protect everything else from whatever might be going on in that sandbox. So imagine you're playing with your army men toys and they've got real weapons and you don't want a stray missile to shoot off into some other part of the playground and hit somebody on the monkey bars. I don't know. I'm stretching this analogy probably a that, bit too far. You've got an interesting imagination there, Josh. <laughs> but but let's say that something dangerous. Sounds like something about a toy story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So say something dangerous is happening in your sandbox. You don't want it to affect the rest of the playground. And so the idea here is that sandboxing something in technology is keeping it isolated from the rest of the system so that it's not whatever is going on in that sandbox is not able to harm something else. So the kinds of things that you would typically sandbox, uh, basically anything where you are loading some potentially dangerous code, right? Something that you got from the internet. So browsers, um, uh, emails, these are things that should be contained in a sandbox because you just don't know what is going to be contained in a web page or an email. So, so the idea is that uh, if you're able to break out of the sandbox, you might be able to do some other things with the system. And as a security researcher, that might actually help you to find other bugs. And I think that was the idea here is, uh, is that this particular researcher wanted to leverage this vulnerability to help him make the operating system better and find other bugs in the operating system. Right. But the fact that he didn't tell Apple about it means that he's somewhat complicit in the fact that this vulnerability existed and that other people could exploit it. And I'm not suggesting that he was telling other people about it, but the fact that it existed and he wasn't telling them, it's like the the traffic light on the corner doesn't work. If you don't tell anyone and there's an accident, you're kind of responsible for not having warned the authorities. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely a gray area because this is a, this particular researcher and, and we won't mention him right now just because I I don't want anybody to hear that name and associate it with, oh, that's a bad guy because he actually has done a lot of research. If you go through Apple's notes on, you know, bugs that have been patched in their operating systems, you'll see this guy's name a lot. I mean, he reports a lot of bugs to Apple. And he probably found a lot of these bugs because of this one bug that he held on to. Right. And now Apple knows that. And I wonder what Apple thinks about this. Yeah, I don't know. So passwords. Why are we still using passwords? Before the show, we were saying, um, why doesn't the Mac use Face ID yet? Why doesn't um, the, the MacBook Pro or the iMac 
use Face ID. My thought is that they don't want to put a notch in the display. When we were discussing this before the show, I, I actually took you seriously when you were, were talking about how hey, maybe it's it's to avoid putting a notch because it's like, well, wait a minute. Hold on. You've got a giant bezel at the top of the, you know, of, of the display when you're talking about an iMac or a MacBook or whatever it is. It, it doesn't go right up to the edge. Yes. Sometimes one can joke. Yeah. Josh. Sometimes yeah. one's allowed was, to make It was a joke. a joke. It was a joke. Okay. Anyway. But it is a serious question. Why don't they use Face ID yet? Um, the MacBook Pro, and I think even the new MacBook Air that doesn't have a touch bar, uses Touch ID. So initially, Touch ID came with the touch bar, and there was this whole thing that the T1 chip, I believe, or the T2 is linked to the touch bar and it has to be in the same device. So you can't just put it on a keyboard that you're using with a Mac. But Face ID, they could put into any device right away. Maybe they don't think it's as important as a phone, which you look at a lot. When you're working on your Mac, you're working there for hours or for a long time. Whereas with your phone, you pick it up, you look at it, and you put it down again. Hmm, yeah. It, it is interesting. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why Apple has not implemented Face ID on the Mac. It seems sort of obvious, really. Why continue to go on with the touch bar when you're basically moving away from, from touch ID in most devices, uh, at least on the mobile side now? You, you do still have the iPhone SE. Apple recently released a new iPhone SE yeah. with a t- touch ID uh, button you know, on it. So I don't know. I, I why why is Apple kind of sticking to two different standards? I'm not sure, but it is sort of odd. Well, as it stands on the Mac, you can authenticate in a couple of ways. You can authenticate using your password. Mm-hmm. You can do some but not all authentication using an Apple Watch if you have one. Mm-hmm. And Touch ID on laptops. I find Touch ID practical on my MacBook Pro. I don't need it a lot, but when I do, just touch and it's over. Don't have to type a password. But the real question is, why do we still use passwords? They're complicated. The natural human desire to make things simple is to just use a simple password or to use the same password in multiple locations. And, you know, we've said in pretty much every episode, don't ever use the same password in multiple locations. Uh, There are other solutions. There's face ID, there's touch ID, there's hand scanning, there's iris scanning, there's there's a lot of, so there's voice scanning, but that might not be secure. So why are we still using passwords? Part of it is, it's just relatively easy to implement? Uh, Well, relatively, I say, because um, as we know, of course, there are a lot of ways that you could implement passwords that uh, they're not really done safely. Um, Just the other day, I can't believe this still happens. But uh, last week, I I signed up for a website um, that was selling a product I couldn't get anywhere else. And so I created a new account you know, one of like hundreds of accounts that I have now on some random website. And uh, in order to create this account, of course, I had to set up a password. And when I set up this password, it didn't work. The login page didn't work correctly. And so I had to reset my password immediately before I could even log in. When I hit the reset password link, they said, okay, great, we'll send you an email. And that'll help you to log in. Well, in this case, it wasn't just a password reset link. They had my password stored in plain text. How do I know this? Because they emailed me my password in plain text, which means they're not storing it properly. This still happens on websites today. This is so wrong. But uh, yeah, anyway, so even the implementation 
of password systems have to be done just right. And so if people are still having a hard time getting that right today, that's all the more reason why we should be moving on to something else beyond passwords, or at the very least, having good two-factor authentication options. That's sort of a related problem to this whole password thing is that text messages as a second factor, uh, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, that's not a great way to do two-factor. So if you've got a broken password system and you've got a terrible second factor system, then why, what are we still doing? We have the technology to do this better. Okay, but so think about it. If I'm setting up a website, my website has to have something to record usernames and passwords for accounts, and it has to have a certain way of doing it. Um, but that website can't say, hey, I want to use Face ID because it doesn't know if the computer the person's using is going to have Face ID. So uh, what what do we need? Do we need a stepwise thing where... Um, websites have the tools to accept something like like the sign in with Apple, for example, right. um, that that has more security. How do we implement this in such a way that that all the different levels, um, these advanced forms of of identification are available, whether Touch ID or Face ID, for example? Well, the history of this, I mean, there was something for a while called Open ID that has um, basically gone away. It's not really being widely used, but the concept behind it um, essentially was. You create one account and you theoretically could use that account to log in anywhere, right? And it wouldn't be tied to any particular other account. Well, we're kind of using similar technologies now. As you mentioned, we've got sign in with Facebook and Apple and uh, Google. Those systems are still accounts, though. And so (laughs) um, you're... But if they go down, then you can't get into any other website that's using them. Right, exactly. Um, There's another uh, proposed solution that we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast called Squirrel, um, which is available. It's out there. There are some websites that have started using it. But the idea behind this is um, that rather than a password or a secret that the website knows that you have to uh, to provide to the website. It's sort of the other way around where instead of you proving who you are to the website, the website proves that it really is the website you're trying to get to, um, to you and, and gives you a way to securely log in. And so squirrel is one solution, but, uh, the problem is that it's not widely known or implemented at this point. And it really needs mass adoption before other major websites start using this. So essentially, we need a single trusted third party, and that single trusted third party has to be always available because if they go down, then we can't log in to different things. I mean, imagine if you can't access your phone or you can't access your email or your bank because that third party isn't available. Well, with the exception of Squirrel, yeah, that's generally true that you usually need a third party. Um, With Squirrel, you don't have to have a third party. But again, I mean, there is a little bit of... uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time to implement something like this. And because it's not widely adopted yet, it's not like you can just hire somebody who's done a squirrel implementation for your website. You're going to have to, you know, uh, play around with it and make sure it works and really thoroughly test it, especially if you've got a a large business and you want to make sure that your logins are secure. Well, um, you know, it's not something that a lot of people have used yet. And so even though that is a system that doesn't rely on a third party always being available, it's not widely known or used yet. 
we we still have this this fundamental problem of passwords are are relatively easy. It's more that it's well known and everybody knows what to do with the password screen. They wouldn't necessarily know what to do if they got a squirrel prompt, you know, to log into a site. Um, it, it's just confusing. It's not what people are used to seeing. And so passwords are just sort of easier. And so people kind of just stick with them. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to getting Face ID on the Mac, but it may never come or it may not be a priority for Apple. Uh, apparently, they're going to be updating the iMac soon. It's been a while. Maybe they'll have Touch ID. I mean, I always just imagined that the Touch ID sensor should be in that Apple uh, on the bottom of the iMac. On laptops, you can put it on the keyboard. But on the iMac, where do you put it? Do you put it in the front? Do you put it in the back? You could put it in the back behind one of the corners, for example. Knowing Apple, wouldn't it be cool if it was that little Apple in the chin of the device, it would maybe glow when you have to touch it or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Apple likes glowing Apple logos anymore, but... Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. Once upon a time, yes. Uh, yeah, there, there's an apocryphal tale about someone uh, with a Mac laptop sitting in the front row of a Steve Jobs keynote, and um, he had a glowing Apple logo, and Claris the dog cow. This is a this is an old you know Apple design uh, uh, illustration thing. Uh, he had an, a, a Claris the dog cow embedded in his Apple logo, and supposedly Steve Jobs <laughs> looked upon this man's laptop and smiled. And said, that's 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 my retelling of the apocryphal tale. Okay. Well, with this in mind, let's keep our eyes out for new <laughs> iMac. Um, it's World Password Day, or if you're listening to this on Friday, it was World Password Day yesterday. Um, so check your passwords. Make sure that you're not using the same password everywhere. And until next week, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>